You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Wallace J. Nichols is the author of Blue Mind. His new novel is Dear Wild Child, written with his daughter and an illustrator. Thank you for joining me, Wallace. Why don't we start with having you read from the book? My pleasure. Um, the book opens like a, like a letter. So it says, Dear Wild Child, We built your house around you when you were still growing inside your mother, in the shade of ancient redwood trees, by a creek not far from the ocean. We built your house stout and soulful to protect and raise you to be strong and healthy. Hardwood and stone, heavy truss and steel bolt, knob and switch. We never locked it. We didn't have to. It never really belonged to us. Jay, you know... This is a really powerful book about building in the wilderness, but also about recovering and finding what's important, which is what's within. Talk about this decision for you to build the house, as you describe it, by the water, near the ocean. Um, This is at a time when you must have been also not just conceiving your daughter, but also your idea of the blue mind. Yeah, we, we chose that spot exactly for those reasons you mentioned. Um, there's a creek nearby. Uh, it's not too far from the ocean. It's in a beautiful redwood forest. Kind of idyllic, you would think. Um, great place to raise kids. Great place to spend time. Um, I'm kind of an introvert, so I prefer nature to people generally. So it was a, a smart choice in that way. Um, there's a dirt road to get there, which I rather prefer to pavement. So it, it seemed idyllic, and, and I thought we were building a house that would last for many, many generations that, you know, I um, eventually belong to my kids and then their kids and their kids, and they could tell stories about great-great-great-grandpa and why he did it this way or that way or weird choices or whatever, just felt like there was a legacy component, which um, I say that now and it sounds arrogant, really. It sounds like that version of myself was a bit younger and a bit more arrogant about such things. Um, but really, by all measures and photographs, you would say, wow, what, what an idyllic place to raise kids, to, to, to call home. Yeah. You, you know, it... it... One of the things that you said was you described yourself as arrogant, thinking it would last forever. And I can't help but agree with you that as I age rapidly, uh, you know, I just look back on the things I said, even just like maybe five years ago, and I think, boy, wasn't I dumb? Because, you know, I (laughs) I was thinking that, you know, maybe I'd tell my my great-granddaughters would say that the beach you used to walk, my grandfather, great-grandfather used to walk on is now gone because of global warming. 
it's not going to be my great-granddaughter. It's going to be my granddaughter. Yeah. What, what am I room? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's humbling. I think that's the, at the end of the day, you, you give, your, give your old self a break, you know, cut that guy some slack and, and be humbled, really. I mean, that's the best I feel like I can do, you know, when I think about it quietly to myself um don't beat yourself up over the things you misspoke or things you thought in your perspective because we're, we're learning i mean this this particular dynamic right now that we're sharing on this particular planet nobody's seen this before that's by definition i guess it just hasn't happened yet and we don't know how to do it exactly we have some really good ideas how to do it better but mistakes have been and are being made made right now. So give yourself a break um, and learn. Like you know, keep your eyes open and like when when you lose the shit you love, mourn that. Like cry, um, but pay attention also. You know. You know this is such a beautiful book. Talk about you know having these thoughts accumulate and deciding to write them in a book and also illustrated, co-authored with your daughter. I mean, there's so much richness in the, the concept of the book itself. Well, the, the, the book came out of a letter that I wrote to Grace, my daughter, and um, she had just the day before left for college. And... Uh, arrived in New York with her mom, Dana, and was beginning the next chapter in her life, freshman year in college, and she'd been thinking about and working towards and applying for and planning. And the day she got to New York, the day after, um, everything she knew as home burned, or at least the house and the stuff, and the forest and the wildlife, and I had to call and let them know um, what had happened. And I couldn't speak. I just couldn't say what I felt like I needed to say as a dad. And so I sat down uh, and wrote her a letter. And this book is based on, on that letter, basically. And I, I wanted to give her words and, and ideas that would help her in some way. You know, this is a very slim book. <clears throat> you could have read it in all of like five minutes, the whole book. But within it, it captures so much about, you know, what you have dedicated a lot of your life to, which is the idea of the blue mind. But it captures also, you know, the, the idea of global climate change, of family, of you know, learning to accept what you, who you are and where you are in the progress of your life. It, it's really quite amazing. Um, as you wrote it and started to do the book, uh, did you collaborate with the illustrator? Yeah, so <clears throat> the, the publisher reached out. They had seen the letter that I'd written to Grace because it kind of went viral. Mm -hmm. um, 
because it, I think it captured things a lot of people were feeling at that time, not just people affected by the wildfire, but it was sort of peak pandemic. Um, everybody was <clears throat> feeling uh, loss and grief of, in some form, um, loss of loved ones, loss of careers, plans, dreams, homes, uh, jobs. Um, and so the, I think the letter um, captured something that was helpful for people and sort of as much as a letter can go viral, I guess, was out there. And this uh, kids book publisher, Cameron and Company, reached out, said we'd like to uh, explore turning that letter into a book. And I said, it's, thank you, that's kind, and it's not my letter, it's Grace's letter. I wrote it to and for her. So if you don't mind, I'll check in with her and see what she thinks of that, because it's a very you know, personal thing. And I, we decided that it would be great for us to collaborate because the original letter needed to evolve to fit a book format. It wasn't written to be a book. It was written to be a letter to my daughter. And so there were some, some things that needed editing. And I wanted her input on that because it was her letter. So I, I said, invited her. Or, you know, told the publisher that it would be Grace and myself who would author it, uh, edit, edit it. <clears throat> and then, as they do, they find a, an appropriate illustrator. And Drew Beckmeyer, who's the illustrator, is just an amazing guy. And I just love his style and his use of um, markers and crayons. And um, he even melted crayons and let them sort of form some of the imagery. And there's sort of crackly crayon melted stuff in, in some of the images. And I gave him um, videos and family photos. And, uh, so, and he really captured the vibe of the, the canyon that we lived in and the, the coastline, um, the kids' childhoods. Um, my cluttery book collection uh, bones and things that you kind of, I'm a biologist, so I sort of have this tendency to like find things like rocks and bones and feathers and artifacts and put them in my pockets uh, and then end up at home with them on the shelves. Fossils, skulls. Um, and he, he captured that. He, he really, uh, there's a, you know, there's an image with a, you know, sort of a, a pile of rocks stacked up and uh, um, a skull and a shell and a claw and there were whale bones and there's a, a, a sea lion skull and the cat is walking across the piano and there's a turtle shell and a, an old clock, um, which are the things that sort of populated, you know, the physical aspects of our, our home. And, um, so he he nailed it on in that regard, and also he um, there's some subtle stuff that you know you might on first pass miss, but uh, the the cover of the book is is a silhouette of of, of, a, of a girl, and in the background is you can see the shades of a of a burnt forest, but inside the silhouette are all the colors. Of life, all of the colors of her life, the nature, and so I just thought that was um, brilliant. It's so beautiful, and there are so many 
of really subtle details in it that you can just go back and page through it. it, it it's like an art gallery with a story, which makes it especially powerful. And for you, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the before the fire, there was this lightning storm that it was just amazing. Describe, you know, your feeling sitting in that beautiful house in that kind of isolated area where there's no light pollution. You can really see all this stuff. But you remember it, right? You remember, oh, yeah. you remember that night oh, yeah. here on the coast. It was it was crazy times. Incredibly unusual, like yeah. absolutely um, unprecedented. Is for me in the time I've lived here, which is several decades. But uh, it was a warm night, windy, uh, and just the sky was full of lightning but it wasn't raining so there was these there's dry lightning and we now know there were 10,000 dry lightning strikes that hit the earth that started over 600 fires and uh it was just a spectacular um spectacular weather and a spectacular atmospheric event and i remember when it was happening, thinking, wow, that's a lot of lightning and things are so dry because it wasn't raining. It was just um, dry lightning. And, and I, you know, I, I, I didn't think, wow, that's going to start a fire that's going to destroy all of my stuff in my house. But it did cross my mind that that kind of lightning storm was likely to start some fires. And so um, like I remember that clearly. I remember that night and everybody around here remembers that night. Like it, it was magical and spiritual and scary and apocalyptic and beautiful. And I think we were all kind of awestruck, you know? Um, so in hindsight, like if something's gonna if something's gonna take your house that's so much better than like a faulty toaster <laughs> or uh you know a candle <laughs> that burnt through or something dumb um i would uh i remember feeling that way when i discovered that everything burned um and i i felt like I needed to express that to Grace, that um, it was such a beautiful storm. And if anything was going to be responsible for this, this shift, um, I think um, I'd prefer that it was a spectacular storm to any, almost anything, really. Yeah. You know, right away, when you write about the storm, I, I think about here's you know a real harbinger of of global climate change. This is you know a big stake in the ground, and I remember it after the fires. My son, who lives in Boulder Creek, he was evacuated. We had some friends I worked with uh, 
a partner, a fellow journalist over at the radio station. I do the music for her show every week. And so she was up there on Empire Grade Road. Fire came very close to her house. And so she was living in our driveway. We just had all these people here. It was a very intense time. And it was also early the first month of the pandemic. (laughs) So we we had a lot on. Now, for you, however, I, I just think that all of this is compounded by your kind of intuitive, long-developed understanding of our relationship with water because that's what it all comes down to. Those clouds are up there because the air can hold more water. That's right. Yeah, there's this... um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about water, studying it, working for the ocean, uh, and trying to understand that emotional connection to water wild water in particular um, in all of its forms so as you say the you know the clouds the fog the ice the snow the lakes the rivers the oceans the rain the creeks all of it even pools and tubs and showers and you know the domestic water Um, and my tendency has been to look at the positive attributes um, the calming effects uh, the creativity boosts, the social, um, romantic parts of it, and to a lesser degree, the destructive aspects. And that tension between it, water will take everything from you easy, quickly, like in minutes. Uh, it will take your life, it will take your stuff, it will wash away your town. Um, we can't breathe underwater, you know. Uh, you take water away and you don't have many days without water. So there is that tension between the um, the love and the fear, and water holds that. And so I've been obsessed kind of with water for a while, and that's my thing. Um, and then this fire comes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, fire too. Fire is the same. It, it's like the same. It's... It is mesmerizing and like sitting by a fire with the people you love, talking all night, playing music, cooking a meal over the fire. Um, best memories, really, some of the best memories in our, in, in our home. We had a nice fireplace and we gathered in front of it every, almost every night. And with the weather as it is here, you, you know, you liked having a little fire for warmth and but it can take everything, uh, take your life and take your stuff and your home, destroy a forest, destroy a whole town in a flash. Um, and that tension, you know, the love and the fear. Um, so that, that's been part of my experience is sort of a bigger appreciation for fire alongside my appreciation for water. Uh, I think that's healthy. Um, and, you know, in, and in the, in the process of this letter was written, I cried I, more and harder than I remember ever crying onto my keyboard. Like, I, I remember even thinking, I'm going to fry my computer with all these tears. I don't know if you can do that, like, through the keyboard. But I was coming close to, you know, the thing kind of, fizzling out and 
um, and, that, and everybody, I know everybody around here was feeling a version of that between the fire and the pandemic and associated social unrest that was happening. Um, we're all feeling that. We're all crying uh, tears of fear and grief and mourning something. So, um, so the fires were burning metaphorically and literally all around us. Could you talk about having to evacuate from your your house? It just must have been. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. To, I, it's hard to, for me to even bring it up because I, I don't like to leave my house very much. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of nice here. You got some trees. You got the water nearby. It, it's okay. I just can't imagine. You know the the generosity in this book that even-headedness is just absolutely, the bravery is stunning, and it's also beautiful. It's, there's some irony in, in that, the way you said that, because I would, I would love a redo on that night. Um, I didn't make good decisions. I made, I made my kids... Part of the, the one of the biggest burdens I, I carry, and I don't think I'll ever give up, is what I didn't grab. Uh, and I, I, I'll tell you what I did grab. I grabbed a quart of oat milk because I thought if I get stuck under hiding under a bridge, I can hydrate and somewhat give myself some nutrition with a quart of oat milk. Grab the dog, George. Got my Jeep, which didn't have a top on it or door, so it was wide open. And so that sort of shifted my fear factor. I thought, okay, I have a big, hairy Newfoundland and an open Jeep with no protection. I'm going to drop, maybe driving through sparks. I don't know, embers. And then I grabbed um, my daughter's Bluetooth speaker. For some, I don't know why. Can't, that's just, and I. I had been, it was late at night, I had been put, I was going to do some plaster work in the morning. So I was putting up the blue tape, taping off the places I didn't want to get the wood trim, I didn't want to get plaster on. I had opened a bottle of wine, had a sip of it, didn't taste very good. It was an off bottle, so I didn't drink much of that, fortunately, because if I had plowed through that bottle of wine and my blue tape and my jamming on the Bluetooth speaker, I might have just taken a nap. And... Um, so grabbed the Bluetooth speaker, the dog, the oat milk, and left, um, not really thinking that the things I left behind would be gone. I just didn't uh, think it all the way through. And, um, and so the books, the journals, the artwork, all the kids' stuff, some family things that it was my job to carry through to the next generation that existed only in one form and that was their physical form you know an old clock and some portraits and pictures of grandpa when he was a kid and those kinds of things that don't exist on planet earth anymore like you know who knows maybe maybe somebody has a copy of a photo somewhere but i, I don't think so um the artwork the kids made when they were in school and some of it really brilliant, you know, and special. Um, 
and they're you know two creative artistic kids that I always imagined someday whatever wherever their careers go artistically they would love to look back on the formative pieces of you know in grade school and um, so that's gone uh, I had boxes and boxes a lifetime of journals I I like to write and observe and I had you know, every style and color journal you could imagine from childhood till now. Didn't get those. Um, so, I, you know, what do you do? What do you do with that other than try to remember some of the things you wrote down and try not to beat yourself up over it? Uh, and, uh, you know, it comes up once in a while. The kids will say, ask a question about a, a thing and then the answer is oh it, it burned um some instrument some old instruments some you know old family piano that the kids grew up playing and i played and my mom played and her mom played uh you know it's just and it, it's just stuff they say <laughs> but it's my stuff. <laughs> it's, it's our stuff. stuff of your life. Yeah, yeah. And some life of it's really... Is more than just us, but... <laughs> some of it's really well made and worn in a nice way. And, it not, you know, and the things I miss are, like, none of it's fancy or valuable to anyone in any way. I mean, and interestingly, and I hadn't thought about this before, but all the stuff I really love was, like, super flammable. <laughs> the, uh, yeah and it ain't that the way it goes <laughs> something poetic about that yeah but so I'd like a redo on the evacuation I don't think that will be granted uh, I don't really have any ad advice on that um, but there's you know we after we went back um, to see what was there and finding really n nothing useful. Uh, we, we made a rule, at least my younger daughter and I started it and then extended it to the rest of the family, um, which was, n let's not make any sad art out of burnt stuff. You know, you, like I, I just had this image and you've, you've seen the welded, to, like the statue of a cowboy made out of welded mangled metal parts and pieces you know that it sits in the in the yard or on the table um you know what i'm talking about yeah. right uh i i just had this thought i don't want to drag around heavy sad art for the rest of my life that i, I don't have the heart to get rid of um so everybody go into the debris and the wreckage and find a thing that you know um, a teacup that didn't smash or break or melt um, a piece of pottery or a spoon and keep that uh, but let's not gather buckets of just mangled stuff and carry those throughout the rest of our lives There's, that was like a a leadership moment as a dad I had um, good call yeah <laughs> if you still I, I have no regrets about sad art yeah you know 
one of the things that that's so interesting is the way that everything can change in those times. Everything. Yet so many important things do not change at all. In fact, they grow stronger. And that's what I think comes across in this book is, and it, it's not the things, it's the temporality of having those beautiful moments in your mind, and it's still the same mind. And that's what this book really brings home, is that the mind that created that book experienced all the, that beauty and joy, and you're still able to experience beauty and joy, which is, I think, you know, part part of... You know what you are trying to tell your daughter in your letter, and, and you know the impetus to create this as a book. Yeah, and um, I think along with that, the fact that this letter, combined with this beautiful artwork, is now a book. In a way, this book replaces all of that stuff. Like that, it this small book. And the, and the drawings of the things and the depictions of the kids' childhood and their home and the forest is a, a monument of sorts and, and, and a gift. That would of. never have existed otherwise. Right. And with the loss of all the photographs and the stuff itself and the recordings and the journals, to be able to work with Drew and, and, and Grace to say, let's memorialize something about this, these years in this place and um, call it a book and then share it, you know? Uh, and that, that is a kind of therapy, really, um, to be able to feel very fortunate and privileged to be, have been asked and then to be able to work on this and then to have it exist come to fruition and um, to have this book in your hands and have it in libraries and at bookshop Santa Cruz and to hear from parents and kids who have read it um, sort of takes the ashes of the stuff and brings the color back in into them in a way and uh, um, I didn't know that that's how it would feel. And I didn't set out to do that. I, you know, that wasn't really why I wrote the letter. It was a, a dumping of emotion and a, you know, a plea to my daughter to stay at college. She wanted to come home and help. And I said, there's nothing to do and there's no home. Home's where you are. Home's inside of you. That was my goal. And I, you know, she's still at college. <laughs> there you go. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. As it is with children. You, you know, I, the more you speak about this book, the, the bigger and more important it, it becomes. And I think to me and to, to, to I think, the listeners and, and readers. And so it's interesting that this is a book that has very few words but begets long 
and interesting and I think very emotional um, conversations. And that's an interesting form to, to write in. It, and it really puts, um, it put so much emphasis on every word. And I, I loved, that was just another gift. I loved talking about every word with my daughter. Like to be able to debate and trim and discuss and fix and play with words with my daughter and knowing the words were about this subject or these subjects um, and that they would eventually be in permanent form in something called a book. I just love that process, uh, going back and forth with her and hearing her insights about where do we say home and where do we say house? And there is a... What a beautiful uh, thought. Yeah, and it's just to think about that. And we lost a house, but we, the home, our home is in us. And then as the story goes, you see the non-arbitrary and certainly very careful use of the, the words house and home. Um, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed figuring that out with her and many, many other small things and trying to avoid redundancies, um, but then also adding the right amount of repetition to the language, you know, the, the drum beat of, you know, a house by a creek not far from the ocean is sort of a, a phrase that is echoed a couple of times. You know, when you say drum beat, I think uh, that you could probably take these words and write them as a song. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, have uh, you? I, I have not, but a friend of ours, um, songwriter named Sasha Scarbeck, who's a brilliant songwriter. Um, he, he wrote a song called Blue Mind that's lovely, uh, based on a book that I wrote. And I sent him this book and said, just let, let this go in, in and see if there's a, a wild child song, you know, not to compete with the other uh, songs, you know, of, of, with similar themes, but, um, you know, maybe there's a, a song in here. And uh, so currently uh, there is no Dear Wild Child album, <laughs> but uh, that would be fun. That would be really nice. I, you know, long ago in my feckless youth, when I was first married, I, I formed a, a band called Pets Gone Wild, which was my thought was, was that's kind of how people look at their kids. <laughs> as they as they grow up, you you expect them to be domesticated, and Fear there's off. absolutely no chance that your kids are domesticated. <laughs> you know, and I think that in the end, we don't want them domesticated, and that's one of the beauties of this book is you set the scene for the creation of the house, the birth of your child. And we see all this growing uh, together a and the outcome. A a and I must admit, it was something of a surprise to me to, to 
because I tend to enter books totally cold to read from beginning to end. I haven't read nothing about books, so I never know what's going to come on the next page. And this book was pretty stunning. <laughs> it's so, pretty positive until it's it, not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even at the end, I mean, you know, you're going to you'll have to work hard not to shed a tear or more. But the, it, you do manage to find, you know, all the beauty that you set up. And that reflects not just your ability as a writer, but also what happened in your life. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that evolution, because when you're standing in front of, you know, the remains of your house, there's a brick chimney, and that's about it, and some concrete porch. That must have been a very stunning and intense moment in in your life. Yeah, it's certainly, you could say, a low point in terms of um, by by certain measures, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, confusing. Um, I remember how everything seemed so familiar, and at the same time, so unfamiliar. And there are all all these dichotomies, and um, I remember feeling heartbreak like shattering heartbreak and fascination like seeing your stuff in a melted mangled ashen form like just look around like you have a wonderful bookcase and of course the auditory equipment the electronics the the wood that this house is built up built of um, sculptures and some of them are made of wood and some of them not and imagine walking through it and saying, okay, that was my, you know, my table where I, where I composed. And that was once my bookshelf and seeing books made of ashes, uh, a piano, what remains of a piano after fire, it looks very different, but it's still a piano. There's a block inside, there are strings, there are pedals but the case is gone. So the thing that makes it look like a piano is pretty well gone. The keys melt, but there's still pianoness. And to walk through your stuff and see the footprint of it, um, I found my, I, I had a lot of books. I found them and they were, in some cases, they still look like books, but if you touch them, they, fell apart in like light, like soft dust. The softest, lightest, gentlest dust in the shape of books. And I could even almost tell you which book they were, even though you couldn't see anything that looked like words, just based on their proximity to each other and their size and shape and just, I love my books, so I I knew them. But then you touched them and they were just, poof, turn to dust, and if there was a breeze, breeze would blow them away. Um, so everything was, we had a, a vintage Airstream that we used through the years for different things, uh, including a little slow coast shop that we had at the berry farm up there for many years. And it melted, like a vintage aluminum Airstream melted, 1,221 degrees to melt aluminum, and that thing melted. And so there were 
puddles of aluminum where the airstream once was and everything else burned uh so fascinating yeah. utterly yeah. fascinating yeah. and like knee-buckling heartbreaking at the same time and so what do you do when you're simultaneously heartbroken and fascinated well you just be heartbroken and fascinated and try not to feel bad about the fascination while you're grieving and mourning and angry and sad and but in the core of it it's like this is kind of cool in a weird way you know and i can't i wouldn't have said that then because it was so inappropriate but i can say it to you now a melted airstream is pretty darn cool it's like it's like your i don't know chemistry project or something like a a fried piano like interesting you know as tragic and heartbreaking as losing that particular piano in that way was um i'd never seen a piano after a 1200 degree fire consumed it and i had no idea or my bookshelf um so I just let that all happen, you know, and let it didn't judge myself for uh, and kind of kept quiet and spent really the next two years um, cleaning things up, trying to take responsibility for my stuff in its in its burnt form, um, making sure it didn't go into the creek or contaminate the soil. Because um, our lives are toxic, just you know, we try to be exactly. eco-friendly people here, um, but you know, look around. Everything, everything that's our lives, including what we're wearing, is deadly. Is deadly, and yeah, yeah melt it. It doesn't it's get easy. less deadly. <laughs> it just gets up. <laughs> and so, where do you want that stuff to go? Well, it's your stuff. You are still responsible for it. Um, I guess the landfill, but that's better than Mill Creek that leads into the ocean a few minutes later. So I took that pretty seriously. Um, you know, their soil testing and all of that has to happen and restoring the meadow, uh, where the house once was, um, I walked in circles, <laughs> a, a lot of circles. I walked in loops and circles, thousands of circles. I walked over the past two years, uh, Slowly, you know, watching the redwoods start to, you know, all the redwoods lost all their leaves. There was not a green leaf in the canyon, all the way to the top of the redwoods. I didn't expect that, but they, they all, the heat just turned all of the leaves brown and then all the leaves fell. So we had dead looking redwoods and then actually dead everything else. And then slowly the redwoods started to put off new leaves and things started to get green and the ferns came out first and slowly, um, like there, it was silent, not an insect, not a bird. Uh, so camping there, you know, in, in the early days, eerily silent, except for the creek. Um, and during the pandemic, no, no airplanes. So no cars, no airplanes no birds, no insects, just the sound of a small creek. And um, slowly hearing like the first bird song, the first insect buzz by, 
and then everything that follows, you know, all the things that eat the insects, all the little rodents, lots and <laughs> lots and lots of small rodents. <laughs> but now the hawks are super happy, but they weren't around. Now they're back and now they're eating all those small rodents. And it's just slowly watching things go from a moonscape to somewhat lush now and um, even more biodiverse, I would, I, I, I would say, uh, according to my botanist friends. Yeah. That's fascinating. Now, y you, you rebuilt, but not the same. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, putting it mildly. <laughs> the, uh, and now I found that really fascinating. Yeah, you know, I, my thought was, you know, we, we started off talking about the arrogance of the construction of the house. And I felt, I felt that in a, and really thought carefully about what would come next. And the design rule was built to last, built well. Um, the switches were solid, like the switches were, even the switches, the floorboards were wide and thick and the beams were heavy duty and it, that was, everything was simple and really stout. Um, the design rule now is mobile <laughs> and like if I gotta, if I gotta move things, they're movable. They're so they're light and they're solar powered and they're, not heavy duty and in the ground and foundational and stone and beam and steel connections. That was the old way. The new way is modular and um, mobile and I guess more resilient. And that makes sense in the era of wildfire, but it also makes sense in the era of atmospheric rivers. <laughs> and catastrophic flooding and high winds and falling trees and um, creeks that flood higher than I've ever seen them flood, which is very recent. Perturbations that are well beyond the usual ends of the uh, bell curve. The yeah. bell curve has been distorted so that the, the, the far ends are now peaks we live in the far ends now <laughs> rather than in the middle <laughs> exactly yeah and so you, you say okay what is this creek going to do i don't know you don't know and the geologists don't really know but it it could be wild it, and it will be wild and will there be another firestorm you know mega fire highly likely uh will will we go from in inundation back to a drought mode yeah in our lifetimes well certainly so how do you build to that and or do you just leave like pack it up and go and uh but where where, where would you go yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this storm hit you right here and this is in the middle of where people are and those trees could blow over and um Fires could certainly sweep through this area, and as we've seen. On the night of the, the biggest storm that, were, that wrecked the beach, I woke up early, really in the middle of the night, 
so I came down and laid on the couch, and I was looking out the window, and I was just watching one of the neighbor's trees just go like this, like a pendulum. I'm thinking, is that going to go? Because if it's going to go, it's probably going to go that way, and it's going to take out the street behind us and the power for who knows how long. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a you know, where do you run to get away from um, the changes? I don't. You don't. So we are all on Earth. That's our home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I don't think Mars is a really good option at the moment. So uh, no, no. Uh, we're here, and so that that new new way of thinking, which isn't really such a new way of thinking. Maybe it's an ancient way of thinking. Um has informed what we've done. And so we have a, a series of, I, I don't want to call them yurts because they're very different, but they're, I would describe them if, if Batman hired Tesla to design his yurt, this is what you might get. <laughs> they're sort of ominous looking sort of black tent things on a platform and they're solar powered and they're highly sleepable, super comfortable. Um, but you can break them down and move them, uh, you know, not in five minutes. But if you, you know, call your friends, you can you can get it done. Um, and uh, a sauna trailer on wheels is coming. Uh, a, there's a porta potty, and you know, solar everything's on solar right now. Uh, I have a cooler and uh, an espresso machine. I have to say. Uh, and a couple of bottles of mezcal, <laughs> and that's that's it. That's what it is right now. And um, I can plug in the Starlink and squeak off some text messages, but you can't stream anything. Uh, you don't really want to do social media with that particular setup, but you can communicate. And um, you know, it, it's a place to spend time, to invite friends and family and colleagues, and and it's a home and a home. Yeah, and, and have this conversation. So when the kids come back from college, um, they bring their friends out there and they can tell their stories about their childhood and hang out and um, learn about resilience in the Redwoods and um, be somewhat unplugged, really. We don't have cell service out there, which is a gift. And it's a little, a little slower, yeah. You know... In the course of this conversation, what I've learned is that this book, which looks like a kid's book, was published as a child's book for from by a kid's book publisher. This is a really, it's a book for adults. <laughs> it tells the same story that you might put in a 600-page, thick-as-a-slab novel, and it does so with the kind of grace and economy that you know our children have. Yeah, and I, I, I imagine um, it's a book for adults to be read with kids, and then uh, it has opened up rich conversations for people to have with their kids and with each other about you know house and home and about resilience and about loss and about some pretty big ideas. Um, not to mention Drew's illustrations. Um, the detail is, it pulls you in and you, you go back and see things differently 
or more each on each pass and there's some hidden hidden gems and i remember from my childhood those are the books i loved the ones where mm -hmm. you found sort of Little the details hidden, that the details. to you yeah and um it's world building yeah i think that with the text and the illustrations you built for us the world that you lived in for so many years and your new world too in in, in this time interior and exterior it's right and in, well in this time of virtual reality and all of the metaverse and it's it's quite amazing that you can take a, a, a paucity of words and even sh make them as brief as possible and then illustrations made with crayons and markers and occasionally melted crayons and create that inner and outer world that I would say rivals any headset with VR you could put on, frankly, I think. I, uh, I would agree. Because our imaginations really are amazing. And, and that's the message to Grace is everything in here and so much more you carry forever, wherever you go, it's in you. And nobody can take it. No fire, no flood, no tragedy, no trauma can take it. Until, of course, we fade away. But that's in you. And keep going, you know. The new book by Wallace Nichols, his daughter, Wallace Grace Nichols, and Drew Beckmeyer is Dear Wild Child. Thank you for speaking with me, Wallace. This has been wonderful. Uh, I agree, and thank you for inviting me and um, the, the great care you take with everything you do. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.